All right, brothers, sisters, if we could find our seats, and we'll get started here for this uh, time of panel discussion. We'll have a brief break after this time, and then we'll gather again at 2.30 for our final session where uh, Brother Ed Moore will be preaching to us. Pastor Ed Moore with us now, uh, North Shore Baptist Church in Queens, New York. Queens, right? Right. Yeah. 1992, brother, is when you were called there? 1992? 92, right. 28, yeah. Very good. And you've already met Pastor Aaron, a pastor of the Mount Vernon Baptist Church in Atlanta, Georgia. Uh, Brothers, I'd like to open this time with a word of prayer, and then uh, we'll dive into some of these questions. Our Father in heaven, thank you for the time we've been able to spend together so far. We pray that this time now would be edifying and encouraging and helpful. Uh, Thank you for the grace of these brothers to come and to not only minister the word of God to us, but to um, uh, sit for this time of Q&A. And we pray that you would make it in in your own way to be fruitful for each one who's gathered here. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, So, brothers, let's start with this. Um, COVID-19, it's been a trying year. Um, How are your churches doing overall in light of the pandemic? What have been some of the greatest challenges and uh, what would you brothers say would be things the Lord is teaching you personally as a pastor, ways he might be sanctifying your churches uh, during the season? Aaron, can we start with you, brother? I'm thankful to, <clears throat> right now, I'm thankful to be in the South and to be in Georgia because the government has been very uh, accommodating to churches. So we um, seek to... Uh, you know, uh, disobey the government where we must, but obey where we can. And um, we can easily sort of heed their uh, request that we social distance and that we wear masks. The congregation has by and large uh, uh, received those recommendations. And so we are able to meet every Sunday morning. Uh, We do have kind of overflow seating, but we can space out so it's been a, it, it, we feel very much for churches in other parts of the country where it is much more difficult, like what Ed is experiencing, I believe, in New York City. Aaron, you, your church membership of 300, 400? 400. And you're, you are in a building sort of like our church that is larger than your congregation. Right, right. Yeah. yeah. So we're able to gather in two rooms with social distancing and have, you know, 75% of the church there. Ed, how is North Shore Baptist Church? Um, what have been the greatest challenges? What are lessons you are learning as a pastor during the season? Yeah, so the answer is I don't know how we're doing. I could uh, sort of like Aaron's, you know, did God have to be gracious? No and yes. Um, so on the surface, it has been excessively miserable. I think everybody understands the reasons why it was miserable but what this has done is it has unearthed other problems uh, weaknesses um, frailties sins in the church which I think were probably there all along but we just didn't know that they were there until all of these things happened Uh, I think we were operating with a, a, a good deal of arrogance prior to it Uh, People would visit our church and they would talk about, you know, what a good church you have or this looks so good. 
but then when everything started to happen, uh, who we really are uh, came to the surface. And it's been like in all ways miserable, not just COVID, not just George Floyd, not just Biden, Trump, uh, not just the mask wars, but, the, but there's been a lot of other things that have happened in addition uh, that have really divided our church and uh, a lot of weaknesses have been exposed. But I think that that's been good because what we previously had, which we only thought we had, we realize now that we do not have, we have been able to address and it has caused us to be more intentional with our discipleship and it has caused us to um, really take sin more seriously and to rejoice in fellowship and righteousness uh, more vigorously. Uh, so surface, uh, it's, it's been rotten. I, I, you know, I'd, I'd rather have 12 root canals than to go through this year again. But overall, I think that the answer is it has been good. Uh, it has been very good for my marriage uh, because I was, as you were talking today, uh, and wasn't that uh, masterful what he, what he did in that last hour? That was, that, that, was, that was superb. But just being so busy all the time and realizing now that all of this has happened that I think a lot of the things that I, were, I was busying myself with were really comparatively inconsequential, things that I didn't have to be doing, forced to, to slow down, and then when forced to slow down, uh, spending time now over the last several months with my wife, and I realize uh, I wasted many precious years being busy, I wish, I wish that life, I don't want life to go back to what it previously was. I am, I'm enjoying, uh, the, I'm enjoying uh, being crippled, so to speak, with activity so that I can spend time with my wife uh, and that's been a lot better. Uh, Aaron, how many years in pastoral ministry? Well, I first went on church staff at a church in 1996, but I've been at Mount Vernon since 2008. So in my present role for 12 and a half years, but in ministry for over 20. Okay. And Ed, how many for you? 36. So I imagine over those years, you men both have had the privilege of serving in churches where you serve among a plurality of elders. I don't know if that's always been the case, but it is the case now in, in your mm -hmm. churches. And um, probably like many of the brothers here who serve among a plurality, there have been lots of things to disagree on in 2020. And, and many pastors are seeking to work together to develop unity among their eldership on a variety of issues. I don't want to make this just about 2020, though. I imagine at all points it's quite common for elders when you have a, a team together of men who are seeking the Lord's face, seeking to love one another and love the body. It just happens often that pastors can disagree with one another. Give us some wisdom um, from your own experience. What has helped you in the context of pastoral disagreement? I'm not talking about disagreeing with other pastors in other churches now, but on your own eldership, how do you navigate disagreement and how do you move toward unity and what encouragements would you give? Maybe there are some here today who are navigating this or that issue with their elders. They're not seeing eye to eye. Give some encouragements to that brother. So maybe, Ed, we'll start with you and then to Aaron. Yeah. 
lay hands on no one suddenly. It is the easiest thing in the world to get elders, to get someone to be an elder. Uh, somebody looks good, uh, somebody is articulate, somebody is committed. Um, you know, it's the, it's the oldest son of uh, Jesse walking by, surely this is the one. And I think you need to move more slowly. What, uh, you know, not that I did this uh, through any wisdom of my own, it's kind of like the blind squirrel finding the acorn, but I, but I did discover early on to move very slowly in finding and appointing elders. Um, most of the friends that I have who are having trouble uh, on their elder board, it's usually because they saw someone that really looked good and they appointed them very quickly and now getting rid of, and, and I, maybe those, that's not the best choice of words, but you know what I'm talking about. Having someone not be an elder is nigh unto impossible. So I think, number one, make sure. And uh, I think the way you do that is first let him be tested. Uh, we have sort of an elder in training program where if we have interest in someone, we watch them and then they are invited to participate as an elder in training. But we're really clear up front that if at the end of the day we don't want you to do this, we're not going to put you forward uh, for congregational affirmation. So I just think, you know, it's, it's better to have fewer elders that really are on board and really have a gospel mindset uh, because one guy in that room can, one bad apple can really make the entire agenda of the church uh, troublesome. I would absolutely affirm that. And, you know, Paul tells Timothy to um, find faithful men who are able to teach others also. And um, he didn't say find those who are able to teach who happen to be faithful. So I take that to mean there could be some men who are maybe really able to teach and maybe unusually gifted teachers, but they're just not faithful. They just don't have a track record of faithfulness. And it is super tempting to uh, exalt them into leadership. As I know, the at least at our church, the congregation is the one who does that, but they're taking the elders' lead on that. So it's very tempting for us to raise those men up. And it does take time to, to prove faithfulness. The other thing that I would add that has been helpful on our elder body toward finding unity is carving out time to have very long conversations even if they don't seem relevant in the moment. So back in, after things happened, um, certainly had the election in 2016, but there were uh, just a, a number, there have been high profile shootings uh, for decades and decades. So we need to be careful. It's not like just all of a sudden we've had high profile shootings. And I'm talking here about, you know, uh, African-Americans being shot. Um, in 2016 and 2017, our elders went away for a day and a half. We read together removing the stain of racism in the SBC. We talked about it. And there was no, it, it, we didn't feel a pressing need to do it. It just seemed to make sense. But there was nothing going on in our congregation that made it seem like we had to do this right now. Um, 
like many churches, we have a, you know, a monthly newsletter, which will often have an, an article. And uh, uh, our elders talked about an article for that newsletter. And uh, I asked all the elders to say, I want to know that this is the only time I've done this, but I want to know that, that we agree with everything being written here. Well, that work, which didn't seem urgent years ago, proved very helpful in 2020 when we had Ahmaud Arbery and Breonna Taylor and George Floyd. We had spent time figuring out where we agreed and what, how we wanted to communicate. It didn't solve everything, more nuanced questions about what exactly systemic you know, racism is or is not have come up since then. Uh, so we could say the same thing about the doctrines of grace. You know, years ago, we went away and had a retreat and, and worked through them and talked about them. And, uh, you know, one elder at the time said, you know, I'm not sure that's exactly what I am, but I know this isn't bad. And that may seem like damning with faint praise, but that was a big deal for us at the time. Um, we could say the same thing about whether or not, we've not landed on whether or not churches should have deaconesses, but we talk about it and we pray about it and we go to the Bible and we're trying to develop a culture where we want to argue from the Bible and not from our experience and not from tradition. We don't want to be blind to tradition. I loved your talk. I mean, I love history. But these elders need to be men of the book. And um, that's, been, that's been helpful. And I think the more we love one another, the more we are shepherds together, uh, we're able to disagree with one another in a way that's, that's godly. And now more than ever, the world needs to see Christians disagreeing well together. And if elders can't disagree well with one another, uh, we've got a huge problem. One of the most helpful things, I'm only three or four years into pastoral ministry here, and so definitely the rookie up here. The, the, one of the most helpful things... That's I, nuts. That's just crazy. Yeah. That, that, you, that you are as gifted... And yeah, that's enough talented. of that. I, I, As you are being I, in this for I'm three, paying three for years. that microphone, Mr. <laughs> Moore. Okay. No, seriously. Yeah. The, I mean, um, like, like, like sinful jealousy right now. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that, yeah. One of the most helpful pieces of advice I got upon entering pastoral ministry was... Um, Is this advice from this century or from like... <laughs> yeah. What century? Just to give us some bearings with you. <laughs> like, like from John John Owen or, or Mark Dever? I mean, where, so, so the, where is this from? Th this Fred was, Flintstone. You know, we're going way back. <laughs> this was advice from Robert Fisher, who opened our, our day in prayer. And I've heard Mark Dever say a similar thing, that um, you don't want to, don't be afraid of disagreement on the eldership. Uh, what, you, what you want is productive disagreement. And that was really helpful to me because... Because when, when we first moved to a plurality of elders, it was always our plan and vision to have a plural eldership. Just naturally, pastors are opinionated. Pastors are responsible for such significant things. There's all sorts of things to disagree on. Disagreement in and of itself is not a bad thing. You want productive disagreement. You want movement toward one another. You want to really talk through issues. And that's what I hear you saying there, Aaron, at the end of your question. Yeah, and... Um Boy, I mean, elders, at least at, on, on our elder body, brothers don't like disagreeing. I mean, they don't, they don't want to disagree. They're not, they don't want there to be conflict. But I, as one elder, I want them to feel the freedom to disagree. And um, they, they need to know that, you know, they're loved and that their disagreement isn't going to make me not want to hang out with them. 
And I think when they see that, it, it helps them disagree helpfully and well. And I need to be not defensive when people don't go with me. That's my temptation. I mean, I think I'm right, and I know I'm not, but if I don't get my own way and I, I get all huffy about it, that's really setting a bad tone. Yeah, you want a shepherd in the fruit of the Spirit, right? It's a great idea. <laughs> yeah. So, Aaron, you wrote a book, uh, Character Matters, Shepherding the Fruit of the Spirit. Um, why did you write this book? All of our attendees should have a copy. If you don't, find me and you'll get one. Uh, Character Matters, Shepherding the Fruit of the Spirit. Why did you write this book? And what would you hope that it would accomplish under the blessing of God? I wrote the book because um, <clears throat> I think that a, a, uh, a segment of evangelicalism that is highly theological, good theologically, good ecclesiologically, can be tempted to think that if I have all my church ducks in a row, um, everything's probably going to be okay. And it's not that anybody says that. I haven't heard any Christian leaders say that. But I think in the past, I've been tempted to assume that if someone has fallen into sin, it must be because their theology is bad. And that's a dumb thing to think, but maybe it made me feel good about my theology. So that's one reason. I think that those with a high view of God, big God theology, uh, I think we can all be tempted to neglect our soul, but I'm talking to people with a big God theology. Secondly, I'm concerned that Christians and pastors can have on the tip of their mind two or three areas, patterns of sin that they know they need to watch out for. You know, so I remember for years and years and years when I would be praying for myself, I would think about pride, I think about lust, I think about laziness, and that just became the tape that I just kept replaying in my prayer life. Never would I have thought that I struggled with gentleness. And so when that became clear to me through the ministry of another brother, it made me realize, wow, I've been a Christian a long time, I'm in leadership, people are following me, but here is a serious deficiency, sin pattern in my life that I would not have been aware of had a brother not pointed it out to me. And that led me on the journey of self-examination, which seems super obvious. We don't need a book for it. Just read Galatians 5. But meditating on those things can help you find blind spots in your ministry. Well said. Uh, Ed, you have been involved under the sovereignty of God in planting a number of churches in uh, New York. Uh, can you tell us how that work began, that, that ministry of church planting, what moved your church to begin planting churches, maybe lessons learned along the way, and, and do you think that every healthy church should give some thought to the ministry of church planting? answer to the second question is no, they should not give thought to it, they should do it. Uh, first question, it's kind of subjective, um, I think my, my wife's parents live in Georgia, in, uh, or um, at the time they lived in North Georgia, and I was flying from New York to Georgia, and as the plane was taking off from LaGuardia Airport, and I was flying over New York City, and I was looking down at the sea of uh, houses, apartment buildings, I just looked at, and you see the, 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 the streets, they're all, they're all straight, they're all lined up, symmetrically and I just asked myself as I was flying out if I lived right there where would I go to church and 
you know, I mean, we're eight million people, or now I think eight and a half million people in the five boroughs. And I know that there are a lot of good churches, but there are not enough good churches. So the thought came to mind, I really would like to do maybe a little bit of something to maybe get a church in that neighborhood so that if someone lives there, they wouldn't have to travel so far to go to a good church. That's the one subjective thing. The other subjective thing is we have a very small building, um, a very small, whatever you want to call it, sanctuary or worship center. And uh, through God's kindness, when we filled up, this would have been back in 2000, um, we didn't really think about knocking out a wall or making it bigger or buying a bigger building. We just said, okay, we're full. And, and not only that, but I think we had plenty of people. Like I can't take care of the people that I have right now. I don't necessarily want more. I want to just get, you know, get rid of some. Uh, I said, let's, let's send some people out and make space and go to one of these neighborhoods that are nearby and send someone to you know, plant a church there. And we, we failed a lot with it. You, you've planted how many churches? I don't know. Um, I mean, if, I'm not sure how to answer that question. If you want to count all the funerals we've had for churches that we tried to plant that didn't make it, I think that there are five in existence now, and I think we've buried a couple. Okay. Yeah. 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 Started, and then it didn't get off the ground. Both of you men, through the work of church planting, revitalization, um, general pastoral ministry, discipling younger men, you've had a lot of exposure to young men. Some young men have um, sort of flocked to you guys and received training and support from you guys and mentorship from you men. Um, we have, I think, some here, maybe in their 20s, who are not elders presently, not pastors presently, but aspiring to pastoral ministry. Um, and many of us will be in the place of providing counsel and advice to young men pursuing the ministry. So imagine with me, you have a young man, he's 24, 25, he's pursuing his seminary degree, he's got a job, uh, he's married, he's part of your church. Um, what are the things that, that you're normally saying to him in terms of, well, what are the matters of chief importance? How should he be thinking as he aspires to pastoral ministry? You've not yet affirmed that calling. But he aspires, he's being trained. What are the things you normally say to that young man? What's the most important advice you give to a young man like that as he thinks toward and contemplates a pastoral call? Nothing per se, but everything as providence brings it. So the best thing to do is to take him with you everywhere you go and allow life to dictate what you say to him. You take him on hospital visits, okay? Here's a situation where the husband is not saved, but the wife is. We're gonna go into this situation. He's going to watch me make the hospital visit, and then after we have made it, I'm gonna say, always make sure that you do this and make sure that you never do that. Uh, you run into a church discipline situation. That young man is sitting in the room while the elders are discussing things. He's going to listen to what you have to say and something's going to come up and there's going to be this teaching moment where you look at him and you say, never under any circumstances should you ever, for any reason ever, make the mistake that I just made right there 
that's going to hurt you in the long run. So I don't know like what, I don't have a manual on, on what to teach or how to teach it. I just let providence lead the way. And when situations come up, um, you teach it. Uh, you, of course, can critique their preaching. You can give them preaching or teaching classes. But I think it's after they have preached the sermon that you say, look, man, great job on your introduction. Your volume was good. Eye contact was excellent. You kind of lost me there. And that was completely irrelevant or inappropriate. But I am encouraged by what you're doing. You're going to do a better job next time. And you did a great job this time. So that's easier to assess. Life just sort of kind of happens. And you just I think you just teach them as you as you go i think it's really great that they are around you as you are raising your children i think it's great that they are around you as you are ministering to your wife and watching your wife minister so i think just letting them like live life with you uh and not having like a a manual for what to do but but a considerable relational investment where you're walking alongside each other taking time together yeah, 100%. Like, yeah, yeah. 100%. Yeah. Aaron, what would you say? Well, I'd give them a manual. <laughs> uh, no, just kidding. Uh, for, for, by, by far, the, count, the, the counsel that I want to give is um, maybe parallel to biblical counsel. You know, love your neighbor as yourself. The Bible appeals to self-interest. The Bible knows we all know what it's like to be loved. It feels good. And now... Go love others. Go love others. Every pastor knows what it's like to have an awesome church member. You know, there are just some church members that you just don't want to, you don't want to go around the corner when they're walking up. You just know that life's going to be good when they pass you by. They're just, they're really great. And so the counsel that I want to give that young man is be the church member that you want to pastor. Because I guarantee if you're that man, um, there are going to be people in your life saying, you know, why aren't you in pastoral ministry? What can we do to help you get there? And I've got a great, 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 great church. Really so thankful for it. There are some people who are just great church members. Just and those and some of them, some of those men are the men who are going to be elders and maybe even, you know, one day being in full time pastoral ministry. I um, remember hearing Aaron speak at, um, in chapel at Southern Seminary. I was watching online, you were speaking there, and, um, and Aaron said, um, encouraging these would-be pastors, be the church member now you want to pastor 10 years from now. And I thought that was really good advice. That was helpful to me. We've repeated that to our guys here to, to focus on being a churchman and letting that be the, the avenue through which you pursue pastor ministry. You men are, uh, you, you have occasion like this to speak in conference settings, to be part of pastor's fellowships. Ed, you spoke it together for the gospel, albeit not with a live audience, with a, a video. I think they did the COVID thing. Um, as you interact with younger men, I'm thinking 20s, 30s, and, and you get exposure to the rising generation of pastors, I'd be interested to hear what encourages you most. And I'm thinking largely let's just say in, in our circles, and by that I mean conservative evangelical circles, reformed or reformed friendly circles, 
what encourages you about the rising generation of pastors? And then what would discourage you? And uh, maybe what exhortations would you give to young men in light of those discouragements? So encouragements, discouragements, exhortations. I think guys today are a lot smarter than me and us. Uh, I think they're a lot better educated. I think that the seminaries are better today than they were when uh, uh, maybe 40 years ago, at least in terms of uh, conservative evangelical thought, whereas a, a generation ago you were having to weed through perhaps a lot of liberalism in in some of the Southern Baptist seminaries. So I think the seminaries are a lot better. I think the guys are, are a lot smarter. Um, I think that there's a, uh, a better emphasis um, now in transparency and in accountability than there might have been a generation ago. Uh, I think that there has been a lot of good that has been done for the church with respect to biblical counseling, which was not as accessible a generation ago thanks to the influence of uh, Jay Adams and those who followed after him. I think that the church is bettered by that. Um, I, I'm kind of, if, if I would say that there's one negative, I'm kind of, I'm kind of bothered by the fact that that guys can't throw a sermon together uh, as quickly as they used to. So just so you guys know, the norm used to be you were a pastor of a church, you did not have an assistant, and you preached every Sunday morning, and you preached every Sunday night, and in many cases, you preached every Wednesday night, and nobody ever balked at it. Like, so if you ask someone, can you come and preach for me, or can you preach? Yeah, certainly I can do it. Now you talk to a lot of these young guys and you say, okay, um, on January 12th, I'm going to ask you if, uh, if you could take that Sunday morning. Oh, I don't know, man. You know, January 12th, that's, man, i got a lot going on. I, I, I think that there's a wimpiness uh, associated with preachers now where there's, I just don't think guys are as eager like to, to grab a pulpit or to get after it or... Um, you know, I don't mean to be the, the guy that... Get off my lawn! Right. I don't mean to be that guy. But, but, but I think that, um, yeah, I think that people are maybe um, a little bit more high maintenance now. Whereas, whereas when I was in seminary, there were a lot of guys that were just looking for any opportunity that they could to preach. There's a homeless shelter. There is a nursing home. There is a prison. And guys were just like, I don't care what they pay me. I'll pay them to go. Like, I want opportunities to preach. There's a, pulp, there's, there's a pastor that got sick, and he needs someone to fill in this week. Guys were like all over that. I think now... Ed, Ed you've used that word pulpit a couple of times. What, what is that? <laughs> yeah, I, I just don't think guys are... I don't think guys are as ready to preach as they used to be. I don't think they can get it together as quick as they did back in the day. But overall, I'm, I'm more optimistic for the future than I am for what was in the past. When I first went into the ministry, we were not allowed to admit that we were Calvinists. You, you had to be a closet Calvinist. Uh, all doors were closed to you if you, if you admitted that. I think that there's, it, it's more acceptable now at least. And I, I think that the future is better than the past in that sense.
So any closet Calvinists here, if you would like to come out of the closet yeah. in your church, <laughs> you have permission from Pastor Ed. Aaron, encouragements, discouragements, exhortations. Yeah, I mean, I think guys like Ed have had a lot of influence these past uh, few years. So, for example, when he said just a few moments ago that, you know, he's, he's happy with the, the number of people he has at his church, none of us concluded he doesn't want to see the lost saved. None of us concluded he's just lazy and doesn't want to pastor X number of people. We understand that he has a missional heart but recognizes that, uh, that, that, that getting uh, churches throughout New York State is a good thing and um, him gathering them all in his building, which I guess is impossible, is, is not the best thing. I, I'm seeing young men with, that, with a similar heart where they're, uh, they're, they're not unevangelistic, they're not lacking a missions mindset, but they don't think that success is having a megachurch. And that's progress. And because I think that small churches are more reproducible, <laughs> because I think it's actually in God's providence, probably even his design, sort of easier to, uh, to gather 80 people than it is 800, as far as a Great Commission methodology, planting scores of churches of 80 people with just enough resources to fund a single pastor is a lot more doable than putting all of our eggs in 800-person churches, which require X numbers of staff. So I think let's, you know, if God grants remarkable growth that allows for all these other things, that's great, but I don't think that's been God's pattern in history. I think the Spurgeons are the exception uh, and not, not the rule. Um, interestingly, and I don't know if there's a little bit of an, an age thing going on here, but my talk this morning about being generous because God is generous uh, uh, is getting at a, a little bit of what Ed more sharply got at. Um, balance is an unusual word, and I think it's become very popular in the past 20 years. I need a work-life balance. And there's nothing balanced about pastoral ministry. It's just super duper hard. And I say that I'm, I'm in a great position, you know, but it's, it's hard. It's hard emotionally. It's hard spiritually. It's a lot of work. And uh, we need to own that and embrace it. And now I want to follow up with five minutes about how I don't want you to neglect your wife. Um, and I just want brothers to realize that, like, if... If, if it seems really hard, it's because it's supposed to be. It's not because you're doing something wrong. It's, it's ministry. I think most of the help that I've given to younger guys is based upon colossal failures that I myself have made, where I've said, listen, I've been down this road. This doesn't work. This is going to get you in trouble, and let me tell you, let me tell you why. I don't know that I've done that much effective teaching based upon my successes. So I, I think, yeah, it's hard. It, it's hard, and amen, praise God, you should be tired. Uh, a great theologian uh, from the 20th century, Warren Zevon, uh, you remember him from Werewolves of London, said, I'll sleep when I'm dead. So that ought to be our motto. Uh, yeah, it's, it's a good thing to be tired. And, and I think sometimes we pit... Um we pit enjoying life against 
pouring your life out for Christ. And having been working through Ecclesiastes for the first time in my life, I'm struck how the preacher again and again and again exhorts his audience, his gathering, to enjoy life. Enjoy the wife whom you love. Enjoy good food. Enjoy good drink. That should be there So I, while you're pouring your life out for Christ. And so it's not like work hard, don't have any fun, you can have fun in heaven. Like life is really great, like even, even in the hard moments. Friends, family, lovely church members, enjoy all that. Um, it's not mutually exclusive with the hard work of ministry. Did the Puritans enjoy life? Yeah. yeah. All of life to the glory of God, yeah. I'm just tickled that we have quoted Warren Zevon and Leslie Gore and haven't quoted Spurgeon once today. So maybe, maybe that'll be remedied in the last session. Leland know. Riken has an interesting book on the Puritans and leisure. Um, can't remember the title, Enjoying Leisure or something. But I thought it was interesting because people think, you know, a Puritan was someone who was afraid that someone somewhere was having a good time. And um, no, they, they knew how to have fun. Yeah. I think that's it, right. It's my party and I'll pray if I want to. <laughs> Nobody knows that song. <laughs> uh, brothers, n neither of you are old men. Aaron, you're, you're f late 40s? I'm 48. 48. Ed, you're 68, 69? 59. I think that Ed looks like he's 50. I was shocked to hear he's 59. It's the hairpiece. Yeah. <laughs> Neither of you brothers are, are at the very end of your ministry. In some ways, um, you're in your prime. And um, I'm, I'm interested to know, have you guys given any thought in your churches to a succession plan about who the next guy will be? And then um, what advice would you give to brothers here? At what point do you begin to think about that? Should you give much thought to that? How have you guys thought about that in your own ministries, in your own churches? There's a young man in our church, and I've set my sights on him. Uh, I've, I've told him as much as I would like him to be the pastor uh, after I leave. Uh, he's 10. Uh, <laughs> and I said, I said to him, I said, I said Christian, what would you need to do in order to be the pastor of our church? I like the way you think. I like the way you... The 10-year-old? Yes. I said, what would you have to do? He said, he said, well, he said, first I would have to get saved. <laughs> Good so, so far. So, I, I mean, this kid's sharp. He's, he's sharp. Um, Remember the name Christian Kill, uh, K-I-L. In all seriousness, I think about that all the time. And what causes me to think about that, it, sort of like as it goes in Ecclesiastes, the guy says, you know, I'm, I'm, the preacher says, I'm, I'm doing uh, all of these things, but who knows who's coming after me if he will be a fool. And how many times have you seen it where a guy has had a thriving ministry or at least he has had a faithful ministry and for many years he has poured himself into a church and the new guy comes along who has a philosophical difference and maybe a theological difference and certainly a practical difference and comes in and hits the beehive with the baseball bat and everything that this guy labored to do has, has, very, quickly, has very quickly disappeared. And I think that the... the um, 
conventional wisdom has always been serve your time and then leave and let the people who are going to be there make the decision as to who is going to come next. I don't want to do that. And if you've been somewhere for a long time or if you've had somewhat of a fruitful ministry or somewhat of an effective ministry, the reason that you don't want to do that is because your people are completely out of practice in finding someone. They have not had to do that for a very long time. They don't necessarily know what they're looking for. Case in point, the church where I'm at right now, in, from 1939 until 1976, James King was their pastor. So 37 years this guy is there. Zero practice from all of the people that he raised up to find a new pastor. They find a new pastor and the new guy coming in after him did not last one year and I won't get into how bizarre his doctrines were but they didn't know how to vet him they didn't they they had no idea they just looked at him and they they brought him in I think that what you should do and I have thought about it a lot myself is that you should be looking for and you should be training someone that you can hand the baton to they're not going to be you and you shouldn't insist that they be you but you should at least have someone that is going to have the same foundation that you have, the same way of thinking, so that you can hand the baton to them and then you can fade out and then they seamlessly uh, take over. That would, be, that, would be my, that would be my preference. Whether God in his providence will allow for that, I don't know, but, but I think that you should consider that. Aaron, your thoughts? I would just add, I would agree with all that and add that it is so, it's such a blessing to have a plurality of elders, to have uh, men who, if I, you know, if I die, uh, I think they would be on the lookout for uh, a pastor better than me. Um, and that doesn't take away responsibility that I have to be thinking about a succession. I have not thought about that. Um, the great thing to think about, but I do trust the elder body that uh, I'm pleased to serve with right now. So a final question before we break and um, prepare for our third session. Um, help us think through disillusionment in the ministry. So uh, it seems to me, from the standpoint of history at least, uh, many men get toward the end of their ministry and wrestle with disillusionment. Uh, John Owen wrestled with disillusionment. I didn't tell the rest of his story, but by 1662, he's among the group of pastors who are ejected from their pulpits. He goes into obscurity again. By the end of his life, he's preaching to house churches of 30 or so folks. He doesn't die in, in the spotlight or anything like that. And the Puritan theology he so treasured is not valued in England you know, when he dies in 1683. Charles Spurgeon wrestled with disillusionment in the context of the downgrade controversy at the end of his life. Many young men who forsook him. Um, pastors have a front row to so many things that are discouraging. They see people in the church dividing. They see strife. They see churches that actually do split and divide. They see things going on in the wider evangelical world and the way men of, of some public profile divide from one another. There's all sorts of things that can contribute to pastors feeling very disillusioned, especially if they have a lot of years on the odometer, okay? 
How, how do you men wrestle successfully with disillusionment? What words of encouragement? It's possible there are brothers here who are wrestling with this very thing and struggling with disillusionment in their own ministries and the wider church world. What encouragements would you give uh, to such men, and how do you guard your own heart as you wrestle through um, those things that would tempt you to be disillusioned? I mean, Jesus dies, and he's got John standing there sort of at a, at, at a distance. Everybody else is gone. Um, they come back together, and when they come back together, what do they have, 12 or maybe 70? And so he ascends back to heaven. You would say, well, this wasn't a, this wasn't a terribly successful thing that he, that he accomplished right here. Uh, I think we need to understand that what we are doing is assembly line work. How many shooting stars have you guys seen? Uh, people who have come up, uh, they've gotten a lot of notoriety, they've gotten a large following very fast, they've been very uh, effective and very articulate, but then before you know it, uh, for one reason or another, they're no longer in the ministry or something happens to them or something happens to their ministry and then they are and then they are quickly forgotten. I think that we need to understand that barring the second coming of Christ, uh, this is just all assembly line work, and who knows what we are doing and what is going to be the, the effectiveness of it down, down the line. These shooting stars that I am talking about that I've seen and that you've seen in evangelicalism, you know, Maybe not that much has come from it, but I think about maybe the little town where I was raised in Pennsylvania where the people were very simple and very godly and very prayerful and maybe they were building a foundation of something which in the long run would be more effective for the kingdom of God generations down the road than... Uh, than any perceived effectiveness that we have. I don't think that, that, that our effectiveness is going to be measured in our lifetime. Uh, Paul gets to the end of his life. He's writing to Timothy, and he says, I've only got Luke with me. Everybody else has abandoned me, and I hope you, I hope you get here quickly. Um, if the greatest Christian who ever lived comes to the end of his life, and he's in a prison cell, and he's only got one person with him, um, like, do, is it really our birthright that we are going to be able to uh, march out uh, with some kind of a parade and that there's going to be some uh, triumphal exit for us? I mean, that was never promised. That was never promised to you. I think the key is that you, you, you be faithful, you trust the Lord, and in time, and when I say in time, I mean after you are dust, uh, what you have done, uh, I think that's when you'll, you'll, when the fruit of that will be seen. And thankfully, you won't see it, uh, because all glory be to Christ. I think for whatever successes I have in ministry, I am arrogant enough to pat myself on the back and to tell myself that I have done uh, a good job. You know, I would never admit it to anybody, but in having a conversation with myself, I, I am quick to, to look at what I have done and to pat myself on the back. Uh, thankfully, you know, 
what I have actually done is not yet revealed and I will not see what it will be, but whatever it will be, all glory be, uh, all glory be to Christ. Yeah. Amen. Amen. Aaron, anything you would add? Yeah. Yeah. Would you close our time in prayer? Sure. Yeah. Oh, Heavenly Father, we praise you for being our life-giving God and the one whose word is so very clear to us. We thank you for the many exhortations we find in Scripture to um, uh, compare the kingdom of God to a mustard seed, uh, to rejoice in, um, in weakness, to preach a crucified Savior, to die before we can live, mm. to uh, carry our cross and follow Christ. Lord, your word is so counterintuitive, and we pray that the pastors in this room, uh, on this platform, the, the church leaders in this room, uh, all the Christians in this room who are praying for and longing for a fruitful, faithful ministry, Father, we ask that we would all uh, understand not merely with our heads but with our hearts the radical nature of Christian ministry. Amen. The apparent foolishness of saying virtually the same thing week after week after week but trusting that because it's from your word it's the right thing to say. We ask that you would protect us from arrogance and from pride, from hubris and that you would humble us and make us aware of how small we are in comparison to you and your glory and your greatness. And we don't hesitate to pray that we would experience revival in our own hearts so that we would more deeply appreciate and experience something of your glory. And we don't hesitate to pray that many, many, many people would come to saving faith through the preaching and evangelistic witness of the churches we are so privileged to be a part of. We ask that uh, we would put to death uh, laziness, that we would put to death any shame of the gospel that keeps us from being as bold in our proclamation and our personal evangelism as we ought to be. And as we await the return of the Messiah, we do pray in this very difficult, very fallen world. Come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Amen. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Men will gather back in here for our final session at 2.20.